Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alvazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between the rules, we'll try to answer any automotive question you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 291-6901. And you put a 225 in front of that, you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That's right. We really wish you would. We like hearing from folks all over the country and the world all over creation (laughs) (laughs) and we especially like hearing from folks here in baton rouge of course that is our primary market sure Uh, folks we actually are here to serve i guess you might say yeah so it's kind of hard for me to fix cars in nebraska but i can at least give some advice get it here we can uh, (laughs) we can work on it you get it here i guarantee we can fix it there you go go. get a lot of email from all over the country and really all over the world i had a email from a guy in the philippines earlier this week right had a little Toyota, I think it's called a Fortuna, okay, uh, which is kind of built on a Hilux pickup truck type chassis, and he had a transmission problem where it had drive, I guess you would say, it would move, but it would not back up, it did not have neutral, and okay. it would constantly go regardless of what position you had it in. All right. And so what is most likely to cause with that is he's got some burned up forward clutches. And those are clutches that have just burned up and fused. And stuck together. Yeah, they just stuck right. together. So there's no neutral any longer or anything else. When you go to reverse, it just kind of locks up because it's implying two gears at one time. Emailed back to him, and he was asking, well, what can I do? I said, well, you're going to need to replace it. Sure. Or possibly find a local shop who could rebuild it for you. You'd probably be better if you could find someone that knows what they're doing with it. That's the key. Yeah. Because they can actually build that unit stronger than it was before. Well, they can, and that's actually a pretty decent unit anyway. I think it's a U-151E, if I'm not mistaken, uh-huh. which is a decent transmission. Doesn't see much problem, but who knows what happened to this one. It could have run out of fluid, may have gotten low, had a leak or whatever. Could have just never been changed. Yeah. No telling. We don't know what actually ended up happening to it, but. We know something happened. Sure. <laughs> but generally when that burned up, it's kind of difficult to rebuild because you're not going to have a whole lot there to work with. It's going to be fairly expensive to rebuild. So he may even be better off to go find a used transmission somewhere. Right. Lower that's, mileage, use that. Or that's a good sells, option. Yeah, Toyota sells a remand transmission. But that's the sort of things that we do get email on. I had another one here. A gentleman from Shropshire? Shropshire. 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 I'm not sure. Yeah, England. There you go. So... We are being listened to from all over uh, all over the world. Right. He had a C-Max, got a 1.8 liter engine in it. Mm-hmm. Name's Adam Peregrine. I told him I'd give him a little shout out there. So there you go. I hope he's listening. Yeah, 2000 Ford 4 C-Max, which I'm not 100% sure what that is, but it's some kind of Ford European. You'd be surprised. Everybody makes a vehicle for a different part of the country, and once it leaves the United States, they actually give it a different name. I don't know if, as we've seen before, we go to, to Mexico. Mm-hmm. They've got a Toyota Corolla. I forget what they call it, but it's a Toyota. It's not a Corolla, but it's the same car. Yeah, and some of them have differences. For instance, in the United States, we have certain federal guidelines for headlights, for bumper standards. Correct. Those sorts of things, side door intrusion beams that do not apply all over the world. So I guess when they manufacture a car in a different part of the world, they may or may not have those things, and they may have other requirements that we don't have. That could be the part of the rename. Yeah, so they rename it. I guess so folks will know it's a different vehicle or whatever their marketing strategy might be. I know in Mexico you can still buy Volkswagen Beetle. I know. We've seen uh, them when we go down there. Yeah, the company down in that part of the world actually bought all the dyes and tooling and rights, I think, from Volkswagen. And they're still stamping them out. Yeah, they're still building them down there, a little air-cooled Volkswagen Beetle. So I say they're still building them. They were building them up until recently. I see a lot of fairly new ones. 
haven't actually checked in the last year or two, but I know at one time you could go into, say, Cancun, one of the bigger cities, you see a Volkswagen dealership, and there's brand-new Beetles sitting on the <laughs> old body-style Beetles. That's right. That's right. That's neat. Which was a way, way big improvement over the new Oh, I, water ta- cool, I they, tell you, they call what? a beetle. Yeah, <laughs> wanna be beetles that they build it nowadays. Yeah, those, those old ones, boy, they were they were hard to beat. Oh, yeah, hard to kill. Yeah, they they go anywhere for yeah. a long time. Yeah, those things were actually designed way back in the 1930s. Ironically, Ferdinand Porsche, who uh-huh. owned the Porsche company, I think when Adolf Hitler came to power, he wanted a car that the average German could afford. Thus, the name Volkswagen, which means people's right. car. Right, and he had contracted with Ferdinand Porsche through some means or the other to design and develop a car that the average German could afford. And it had to be rugged. It had to be fuel efficient. It had to be all these things and that, that was specified. And that was the design they came up with. And that's the reason it looks like an old car, because it was an old car sure. <laughs> designed in 1930s. So they basically kept the same design, but it they, was really a sort of a revolutionary design in its day. Oh, it was. They had several design changes, but for the, for the most part, it all mm-hmm. looked the same. You know, they changed the back window in them. They changed the flares and the fenders and the lights. And, Bumpers. But overall, it still looked like the old round Volkswagen Beetle that yeah, the they had been building forever. Yeah, I think the Super Beetle came out, I don't remember, somewhere 70, in the 70s, 71, 71 Yeah, 71, 72, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that had McPherson struts instead of that twin torsion bar front uh-huh. end, which was kind of an enhancement as far as handling went. Right. But... The old air-cooled engine, I mean, they really had that thing just about perfected. Lots oh, yeah. of other folks have tried to build a, a horizontally opposed air-cooled engine like that. I know Chevrolet attempted that with the Corvair uh-huh. and really didn't work out quite as well for them, but they had nothing but oil leaks and problems with that. But right, that little German design, boy, it was hard to beat. It was, and you could actually... The only ones I've ever seen really had problems is ones that had been serviced improperly. Uh-huh. Someone went in, worked on it, didn't understand the nature of what they were working on right and they would foul things up foul the little tubes up for the push rods or what have you and then they'd have oil leaks after that or they'd split the case and not get something back uh-huh. exactly like it was but, yeah there's like four bolts and the whole engine and drivetrain come right out yeah, the back right out the bottom it yeah was, it was uh, a neat little car pretty efficient design so i don't know anybody who had one of those that has some fond stories of it <laughs> uh, i know i know people who still have them yeah yeah, there's still a bunch of them kicking around. Sure there are. In fact, at one time in Baton Rouge, there was a few shops around that worked on nothing but air-cooled Volkswagen. Right. And I don't guess they're still around. I don't uh, see them anymore. There's one or two that are still around, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're still working on those or not. Yeah, and some of the Porsche cars actually had the same basic design. It was much uh, enhanced and uh, a lot Diff- more horsepower and stuff Correct. like that, bigger engines and all. But same basic unibody design with the air-cooled type engine. Uh-huh. In fact, even during the war, some of the, I guess, their rendition of the Jeep called a Kubelwagen, okay, which was like a Volkswagen thing that made it to really? the United States later okay. on. Yeah, you'll see right. some of the old newsreels. You'll see some of those little German Kubelwagens running around. Right. Personally, I don't think you're hanging there with a Willis Jeep. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of prejudiced about that. There you <laughs> go. Yeah, it's kind of just things that uh, you know different around the world and stuff right. like that. So. Hey, give us calls, 291-6901. We'd really love to hear from you. Be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. It's kind of ironic. I guess we're talking about some of these old Volkswagens and old vehicles of all sorts and how some of those are still around today. And the reason being, they were designed in such a way that they could be repaired. Right. All of it was mechanical. Yeah, all analog design and mechanically built. So you could pretty much keep that vehicle going forever. Right. If you had a part that went bad and nobody else carried it, you could almost make the part. You, a lot of times you can make it. Get it running again. 
in certain cases, you could go to a junkyard and find one off another car and put it on. So there were ways to kind of keep those cars going for a long, long time. Sure. That's why they're still around. Well, that's right. And I just kind of shudder to think what's going to happen with most of the newer cars that they're building today. That's just not going to be the case. I was talking with a gentleman in the shop earlier this week, and we were discussing some of the new cars, the 13s, 14s, and such as that. And he was saying, well, why can't you just keep these cars going? I said, well, the cost of the components are so expensive that you're not going to be able to economically keep it going. You Correct. Know, for instance, if you've got a 10-speed transmission, you may be looking at an eight to $10,000 replacement cost sure. for that. So at some point, it's just going to become economically impractical to keep the vehicle going. And he says, well, how about if I go to a junkyard and get the parts? I said, well, that's not going to be a possibility either because more and more and more what's happening is that the components have so much electronics integrated into them, what they've done now is starting to put a IP address on some of the major components. Right. And I think this trend is going to spread and get more so. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if we take a PCM on a 2013 model car. Okay. And let's say we've got another 2013 model car and we suspect the PCM is bad in it. Well, we take the one out of car A. Which is running. Which is running, and put it in car B. Okay. Well, it will not run. Correct. Because that computer has an IP address, and it recognizes the rest of the components in the car. Now, the insidious part is if we put it back in car A, car A is not going to run any longer either. Exactly. (laughs) Because it's recognized that you swap something around, and it's going to shut down, and you cannot get in there and repair it because that is an open loop on a new part that is no longer accessible once a part is put in service. Exactly. When when I put this part in, I have to go in and program the VIN number in or the car won't run. When I do that, it's a one-time deal. It cannot be done again. Right. It It locks it into that particular vehicle. It locks that loophole out. And computers are done that way now, but it's only a matter of time before transmissions will be done the same way. Sure. I know even some of your European cars, like your Volvos, the shock absorbers are tied in. They've got IP addresses on it. have to be programmed in. Wow. So there's going to come a point where you just won't be able to go and get components from a salvage yard. And I think that's all kind of by design. What sure. the manufacturers know is their two biggest competitors are folks who keep a car too long. Because if you keep a car past 100,000 miles, another car they didn't sell. Correct. And, of course, the used vehicle market which supplies people with an alternative to buying a new car. Now, if you can put technologies out there to eliminate both of those, you well, just, just cornered the market. Sale. Yeah, you increase your sales market considerably, and right. I think that's where they're going with all this. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's what I see happening. That's what we're looking forward to. I well, mean, that, that's coming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you're ready for Get it. Get ready. Hey, let's go to our phone lines with David. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Lewis. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. I've got a 2000 Honda Accord that I'm having a air conditioning problem okay. with. Okay. A few months back, I talked to you. The dryer had come apart in it. Okay. And put these little BBs yes, all sir. up in the expansion valve mm-hmm. and everything. That was fairly common. Yes, sir. Well, I've, I've replaced every component in it. Okay. Condenser, compressor, expansion valve, evaporator. Okay. Uh, you name it. Even flush the lines out. Okay. Well, put it all back together. And now it's cooling, but it's not cooling as cool as it should. Okay. My uh, temperature won't get below about 60 degrees. Yeah, that's not nearly cool enough, David. That'll be okay on a coolish day, but it's certainly not going to work on a 90-degree day. Right. Uh, what do the pressures look like on it when you check well, them? My, my low side is running about 30 to 35. Okay. My high side about 125 to 150. That's low on the high side. Is it fully charged? Well, it's supposed to take two pounds, so mm-hmm. I put two, two 12-ounce cans in it. 
Well, two 12-ounce cans is not going to be two pounds. Right. 12 ounces each. So you're eight eight ounces short. I would say you're probably undercharged with those readings because 30 is really good on low side, but Uh the high side should be roughly twice the ambient temperature plus 40. For instance, on an 80-degree day, 80 and 80 is 160 plus 40 is 200. That's about what your high side should be. If you're not making that much pressure, then it's not going to be enough differential between high and low to produce cold. It'll get cool, but it won't get cold. The only way to truly charge that one, David, is to have someone evacuate the system, get every bit out, and then add the right amount by weight. Okay, You you have to have a charging station and add the right amount by weight. You can't go by cans. Yes, sir. Now, I did evacuate it. I've got a vacuum pump. Mm-hmm. But, like well, but you've got to charge it by weight. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's what I would say. By, right. by the numbers you're quoting me, that is the number one thing. If the high side were high and the low side were low, I'd say you'd have a expansion valve stuck or you'd have a compressor not working. Or if the high side was a vacuum and the low side was low, then you got a restriction in the system and on and on and on. But with the low side fairly normal and the high side that low, the most common cause would be a undercharged. Yes, sir. Now, I, I put my hands over there on the evaporator, you know, mm-hmm. where your line comes yes, out. Mm-hmm. Of course, the big one going with compressor is good and cold. Mm-hmm. The other one's just kind of not really cold. And yeah, not well, hot. see, that also indicates a low charge because what happens is that as the refrigerant flashes coming through the high-pressure line, it goes through the expansion valve, and then it flashes. Now, it starts to turn into a gas, which absorbs heat, but if there's not enough volume there, it's going to exhaust the amount that's there, and so when it comes out, it's not going to still be cold. Whereas if you overcharge it, it starts coming out and freezing the line up because there's too uh-huh. much flowing through it, see? So I would check the charge level. And like I said, the only way I've ever seen to really do one properly is with a charging station. You have to actually yep. weigh the charge when you put it I in. See. But that's yeah, most likely what you're going to be. Now, you definitely don't want to get overcharged because if you overcharge, you'll damage the system. But undercharge is also bad because, number one, it's not going to cool. But, number two, it doesn't transport the oil properly. And what you can do is end up burning up the compressor if it's undercharged. Now, shouldn't that compressor cycle on and off, too, at times? It just depends on how the cycle switch is set. See, it's based on the low side. And if you got 30 uh-huh. pounds on the low side, it's not going to cycle. It's only going to cycle yeah. when it drops to around 25 or so. Yes, sir. Okay. So it, it may or may not cycle, but it sounds like it's light. I mean, the only other option would be something like the expansion valve stuck on it to where it just can't produce enough high side pressure. It's kind of pumping in a loop. But okay. normally, when that's the case, your low side will be higher. Yes, sir, okay. I mean, the other possibility is the compressor is weak, but again, normally with a weak compressor, your low side is going to be higher. So I'm oh. saying you're undercharged. Well, sure, try that out. If I All can't right. get it, I just may have to. Try well, if you don't do anything, if you don't do anything else, just add a little more to it and see if it starts getting cooler. Sure. You know, yep. don't go crazy, but add another say four ounces to it and see if it starts getting cool. Cool. If it starts dropping, then you know you're working in the right direction. Yes, sir. Okay. All righty. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right, David. For your thank Appreciate you. Bye bye. All right. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we would love to have you. We're gonna take a quick little break, and we'll be right back with more in the automotive hour. West. Linda, I've been so tense lately. Can you recommend a masseuse? Oh, have I got a massage guy. Johan Thundercloud. He's Swedish Native American who uses classic deep tissue massage with natural healing methods. That sounds interesting. His deep tissue green pine cone massage is amazing. Along with the piercing eagle claw technique. Working your muscles with a rhythmic screech. Ah! 
When you hear that, you know it's working. I bet. It seems everybody's got a guy these days. And if you're looking for an automotive guy, check out the team at Agco Automotive. We keep it simple with high-quality maintenance and repairs you can trust. And don't forget about Agco's general inspection, an annual checkup to diagnose problems and schedule maintenance so your car will perform for the long term. One thing, though. Do you bleed easily? What? Johan will want to know. Get automotive peace of mind. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us as the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, tune to us. We'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call and try to stump us or put it to us? That's it. Bet we'll do my best to muddle through. There you go. <laughs> but I don't know. I'll tell you that. There you go. <laughs> We're talking about air conditioning. Right. Uh, what gentleman just called. And air conditioners nowadays are very, 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 very sensitive to charge level. And I know the machines that we use to charge them now have digital scales made in them. Right. You have to calibrate them all the time. But it's just such a precise thing. Right back, you know, back in the day when you when air conditions were coming out and getting into the general public, mm-hmm. they were pounds of right. refrigerant in them. They were also a different refrigerant than they're using today. Yeah, they were using R12 back then, and the average system in those days probably held between four and five pounds of refrigerant. Right. So if you were down, say, eight ounces, it really wasn't a big deal. Sure. Number one, R12 cooled better than the 134A, and number two, it just... When you lose eight ounces out of five pounds, that's not a big percentage. Exactly. But when it only holds two pounds and you put 24 ounces, eight ounces is about 25% low. Correct. It's not going to cool. And there are a lot of systems out there nowadays that only hold maybe 12 ounces mm-hmm. or one pound uh, in some cases. So if you get down two or three ounces, it'll quit cooling. Sure. And that is such a tiny, tiny, tiny leak that... It seems like the, the units are always given problems, and they are designed with nylon barrier hoses, which are much, much better than the old rubber hose they used to use. Most cases, they've got O-ring-type fittings rather than threaded flare fittings, which are also a big improvement. And they've done things to try to make them more tight and more sealed, but inevitably, stuff will leak out. Sure. I remember reading that the amount of leakage that it would take to cause a problem in an air conditioner. If you compared that to a tire, okay. and there's the volume of air in a tire and leakage, it would take 50 years for that tire to bleed down the same amount as what that compressor leaks down. Wow. You know, it's just such a smaller volume, and it just takes so much less that if you compared it, you know, volume speaking, it, that that's what the comparison would be. In fact, put an article on the website this morning on leaking evaporator cores, and this is one of those things that in the past we didn't see so much. But we're seeing more and more and more on newer cars, and that is where the evaporator core gets a leak, and it starts to leak refrigerant out. In other words, it doesn't leak water or anything like that because it doesn't have water in it, but what it leaks is the refrigerant in the system now you're, out. you're in the vehicle underneath the dash, and I, I don't know if any of you have lifted a hood lately, yeah. but if you've lifted a hood and looked underneath it, everything is real compact, real tight together all bunched in there together, the underside of the dash is even worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The evaporator core is goes in with the HVA system, which is all in a big box and put up against the firewall, and then everything's kind of assembled on top of yeah, that. They, they kind of hang it off of strings and uh, build the rest of the inside yeah, of the car around it. around it. And I was talking to a tech in a dealership who was telling me, he says, some of the new Camaros, brand-new GM Camaros, are having – trouble with defective evaporator cores right. coming from the factory. 
And he said you have to pull not only the entire dash, you may have to pull the windshield out of wow. the car. And when you pull a windshield on a modern car, first thing you realize this thing is glued in with urethane because right. it has to keep people in the car. And it's also a structural part. So that means you're buying a windshield. <laughs> oh, exactly. But you're not going to take it out break. and put it back no, in. No way. But the reasons why evaporator cars leak are they're varied, and there's lots of them. The biggest thing I think that's bringing on a lot of this these days is in an effort to enhance the efficiency of the unit, what they've done is they've gone with a thinner and thinner aluminum Correct. on the core because the more metal, the more or the heavier less, it is. Well, the less transfer of heat you're going to get. If the refrigerant is closer to the air, then it's going to transfer heat better than if it has to go through a thick piece of aluminum. So they've made the cores incredibly thin. They're very, very, very thin. They've also changed the design of them to make them more efficient, which makes a lot more weld joints on it. And when I say weld, it's not like a a settling weld or a stick weld. It's uh-huh. a, a brazing process that's done with a machine. But all these little joints are places for possible leaks. We do see a lot of defective ones on brand-new cars. Those are generally a bad design or poor assembly. But for the most part, what we see is the vehicle is maybe 6, 7, 8, 10 years old, and it develops a leak. Sure. And there are a number of things that contribute to that, not the least of which is the expansion and contract of a evaporator core because it starts out you're in the car all the windows are rolled up it may be 110 degrees inside this car well when you turn the refrigerant on the air conditioner on it starts pumping liquid refrigerant into this thing which flashes off and i mean it drops to below zero sure in that core in almost an instantaneous thing so the metal all contracts it's heated it contracts and the bottom of the core is a different temperature than the top of the core so you have different thermal expansion rates there and the continuous heating cooling heating cooling heating cooling cycles like any piece of metal it's going to start to crack in times what makes this way 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 worse is if you get any type of contaminant in the refrigerant for instance if you service the air conditioner you don't change the filter dryer well now you may have some moisture in the system the moisture is not being removed because the dryer is depleted and what happens, it becomes corrosive. Well, now we got an outside-in problem because it starts eating from the, outside, from the in- inside, inside out. out. It starts eating from the inside out. And it's not going to take it very long to eat through this little paper-thin evaporator core. No, and that's really the thinnest part of the whole system. It is. Now, there's also the outside-in problem where, let's say, you allow leaves and pine needles and stuff to build up on the cow area of your vehicle parking under trees. That gets drawn in by the blower motor. Sure. It gets chopped up, and it becomes debris on the evaporator core because it's wet it all sticks to it as this organic material starts to degrade it forms acids and you get an outside in corrosion okay going on so right these are just a couple of things we've got to take a quick little break we'll talk a little bit more about this when we come back be right back with more in the automotive hour tj i've been looking to tone up man you have a personal trainer right yes i've got the guy Mr. Miyago. <laughs> He's going to teach me how to wax on, wax off. Mr. Miyago's no joke. Oh, sorry. He begins by filling your shorts with wet sand to provide weight resistance and enhance focus. Then launches into a series of drills like crouching tiger, hidden badger, fire monkey, flogging duck, and highly agitated dragon. Sounds kind of extreme. Yeah, bruh. Extreme results. Everybody's got a guy these days. And if you're looking for the right automotive guy, it's Agco Automotive. We make it easy. 
quality repairs, and a staff you can trust. And with Agco's general inspection, you get an annual checkup to diagnose problems that could cost you down the road. You will need to sign a waiver stating you are not allergic to pig intestines and live geese. I think I'm just going to hit the gym, TJ, but thanks. Get automotive peace of mind. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. This joins the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Haldesan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Tweet Tools, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 291-6901. We sure wish you'd give us a call. We'd love to talk to you and give you some free advice. That's it. Now, 225 in front of that number will reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That is absolutely correct. And should you happen not to want to... Give us a call this morning or maybe think of something after we go off the air or even next week at midnight. There you go. You can send Lewis an email from the website and get your questions answered that way. And the address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Contact bar on each and every page. Just fill out the form and send it on in. That's right, and that'll come right straight to me. I'll be glad to answer that for you. I never mind answering email because it lets me know what folks are concerned about or worried about. or Sure types of things and generally if i get something that's not already answered on the site and i'll go ahead and add that into the vehicle question so next guy comes along just do a search and he can find it without even having an email so there you go you might check the vehicle questions there's well over a thousand of those in there have already been answered kind of a short to the point answer and if you want a more detailed answer on a particular topic you can always go to the detailed topic section that's right that gets you a in-depth article on a particular topic Let's just say engine oil. You want to know what 5W30 means. That's right. Well, you can go in there and read that article, and when you're done, you will know what 5W30 <laughs> means. And why a vehicle maybe calls for 5W30, why you shouldn't put 1030 or 2050 or 1540 or any of the other various types of oils. You know, today, there are just a whole cocktail of oils out there because engines have become so much more complex. They've added so many accessories to engines. Right. They've actually designed an oil to work with these changes they've made to the engines. Well, that's right. And we get people tell us all the time, well, I've been using 15W40 for 40. Well, we don't, this is not the engine you had 40 years ago. Exactly. This is a much more complex technical type engine oh absolutely it does the same job it may still push the car down the road exactly that's where the similarity ends for instance people say well my old engine had a timing chain it lasted forever well that's true but that timing chain was about two feet long right and it was two components yeah driving an overhead valve engine and that was all it was turning whereas timing chains today they may be two three sometimes four chains they may be 20 feet long got guides on them nowadays plastic guides tensioners and who knows what else they're driving direct injection pumps they're driving all sorts of things variable cam timing displacement on demand active fuel management all these things are operated by the oil now correct and each of those things has requirements and so if you just go in there and dump a generic oil in it it's not going to meet all those requirements no it's not and then you're really going to have trouble when things start failing Because of the wrong oil. One reason we see so many failures on engines today, I know we had a Chevy Impala in the shop earlier this week. Right. And he had 80-something thousand miles we're putting an engine in it. Wow. And that is just so common. I mean, the Ford products are probably worse than that. We're seeing 75, 80,000 mile failures on these engines. And I know some people say, well, I got a 100,000 mile warranty. Well, that's great, except if the car is six years old, which that's most it. of them are. <laughs> that, that warranty's over. Yeah, that warranty's done. They're not willing to do a thing in the world for you. And if you put the wrong oil in it, it's just not going to protect that engine. And when something comes apart, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be like a grenade went off. In oh, sure. Engine. 
Sure. For the most part, they can't even be repaired when they come in. It's just too bad. I know the Impala we're talking about, the piston, something had come apart. And it was actually hitting the spark plug. Wow. So the piston came up, smashed the plug flat, started misfiring, check engine light popped on, brings it in, we check it, misfire on number one. First thing is pull the spark plug out, the end of a smashed flat. So you know something. I, I know got there's in there. something pretty seriously wrong here, just to start with. <laughs> That's so next right. thing I did, I checked compression on the engine on that cylinder. There's no compression in the cylinder. Right. Well, that confirms it. And just for laughs, I took an extra plug. I had an old plug I had laying there, screwed it in, cranked it over one time, and pulled it out, and it smashed it flat. There you go. So so something definitely got in there that right. wasn't supposed to be well, there. Well, either the rod is thrown or the piston's broke or something. You know, we don't tear it down because that would involve a lot more labor. We just replaced the engine, got him going, but that kind of thing is happening more and more and more and more. And for the most part, it's because people are either not changing their oil nearly often enough, or they're using the wrong oil in right. many cases. We're actually seeing these extended oil changes cause a big problem with engine failures. Well, that's right. And what happens, a lot of folks just don't understand about oil and any of that kind of stuff. They really don't have a technical background. So... They go to some oil change place, and they trust that they're putting the right oil in the car. Right. And they may or may not be, and I'm sure there are several. In fact, I know a few quick change places that do an absolutely excellent job. Sure. Uh, high quality. The, the guys care about what they're doing. They do a wonderful job. But then there are some others who probably don't. And if they can buy 10W30 bulk oil cheaper than they can buy 0W20. Guess what's going in it? Yeah, they're going to use the cheapest oil they can because they're running 995 oil change specials. And did they change oil? Oh, yeah. Did they put the right oil? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> or use a quality filter. Or use a quality filter or even the, the right, right amount of oil. Yeah, the right amount of oil or, or torque the drain plug or on and on and on. Oh, and yeah. On. It's, it's, it's not as simple oil change as you think it could be. Well, it's really not. I put an article on the website, How to Change Your Own Oil, a while back, and actually wrote probably close to a 1,000 words on that topic. Sure. And that probably is not everything you would need to know, but it's certainly enough to kind of keep you out of trouble. Sure. And that sort of thing happens an awful lot. A lot of the newer vehicles, like, say, the 2011 and up GM vehicles, require all that meets the Dexos standard. Which is a GM standard. It's a GM standard. Dexos is not an oil. It's a it's standard. A name. It's a specification. And what happens is that if the oil meets that specification or exceeds it, and they pay GM a little kickback, then they can put the Dexos label on their bottle. So sure. you know that you got the oil that'll work. But some oils actually meet or exceed Dexos standard, but they're not going to pay GM their tribute, so exactly. they can't put the label on So you just don't know. Others may not meet that standard just because it's a good oil, and most oils are good, but the word good is sort of ambiguous. It may not have the additives to work with this timing chain. It may not have the additives to work with the active fuel management. Right. It just may not have all the other things. Just because it says 530 mm-hmm. but doesn't meet the Dexos standard, doesn't mean you can use it. That's right. And in 2014, some of your Silverados and stuff actually go into 0W20. Correct. The Which scuttlebutt is, is they're going to be an overhead cam engine when they come so out next year. I complete seen redesign. That yet. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. But again, like I said, they don't really call Lewis up and say, hey, this is what fix do. <laughs> <laughs> Although they should, huh? They should. In yeah. my opinion, they should. But, that's uh, it. You know, I got to kind of wait like everybody else and see what comes out the pike, you know. <laughs> but I guess we'll know in August when new vehicles come out. But that's the hoopla is that it's going to be a totally redesigned engine that right. takes 0W20. I know and that is a synthetic oil. Synthetic is not an option. Yeah, you can't say, well, I'm going to use synthetic because I want more protection. No, no, that no, is this required. Correct. It requires that synthetic or synthetic blend to just meet their specifications. And it's because the oil is doing so, so much more on the vehicle other than just lubricating the engine. Right. 
It's just not like the old days. And what really gets folks wrong, I remember reading Will Rogers, is not the stuff that you don't know that hurts you so much, the stuff you know that ain't so. (laughs) (laughs) And an awful lot of people know a lot of stuff that ain't so, or at least it doesn't apply any longer. Exactly. It doesn't apply any longer is the phrase we need to be using, I think. Mm -hmm. And that applies not only, of course, with engine oil, but coolant. That's another thing where there's probably 25 different kinds of engine coolant on the market Mm -hmm. today. I know and Ford has three right off the top of my head. At least three just on Ford, yeah. uh, at least two on Chrysler. GM has been pretty consistent with their Dexcool since yeah, 1996. But, but you don't know, with a new engine coming out, they may have redesigned well, that too. They may. They, they do that kind of stuff all the time. Sure. And, of course, the imports. Toyota's got at least three different brands. They got right. the regular green Jap coolant on the old cars, then they had and the red the, for a number of years. Which is the, li- the long life. Long life. And then they actually have a super long life. Right. Which is a already mixed, pre-mixed, pre-mixed coolant ready O-A-T. to go in. It's OAT type coolant ready to go uh, in. Honda's got at least two. They've got the a blue, yeah, the Japanese green, and they've got a blue super long life, which is also a pre-mix. Right. And when you look at these different chemicals, you might say, well, they're all ethylene glycol or propylene glycol, and that's true, they are. But what has changed is not the freeze side, but the it's corrosion, corrosion protection. side. Correct. The corrosion protection strategies between a silicate type coolant, a phosphate type coolant, and an OAT or HOAT coolant is completely different. It's a totally different means of protecting the metals in the engine. And this is so important today because they use so many active metals. So many dissimilar metals. Dissimilar metals and active metals. For instance, when you had a cast iron engine block, cast iron cylinder heads, and a copper radiator, all of those are relatively non-reactive metals. Correct. And they're pretty durable stuff. Yeah, you could almost run ditch water in them and, and get by. Pretty much. I mean, it might plug up, but that was about right. the worst case you were going to have. But with an aluminum radiator and aluminum cylinder head and who knows what other kinds of metal, what happens is you can start to get a galvanic action going on where you're actually producing electricity. Okay. You have dissimilar metals. You have an acidic chemical, and that's basically a big battery. You can and, actually take a voltmeter and take the positive probe and put it in the radiator coolant mm-hmm. and take the ground probe and ground it to the block somewhere, and you can actually get a voltage reading across it if it's out. That's right. You actually can do that on every car. They're going to produce some voltage because there's always a little bit of potential there. But when that voltage potential starts to get up more than like a tenth or two-tenths of a volt, I mean, when it starts jumping to half a volt, You're what it's trouble. doing, you got an anode and a cathode. Sure. And we know what happens. One or two is going to get eaten away. Because that's how it works. The electrons from one piece of metal is being transferred to the other, and the flow is the electricity. So you're going to start eating metal parts away. And sort of like we were talking about the evaporator core earlier, well, it's the same thing with radiators. They're aluminum now, and they're very, very, very thin aluminum. Heater cores also. Heater core even more so because, again, a heater core is a heat exchanger. They want good, efficient transfer of heat. So they have to make that metal very thin. And, no, that's cheaper to make it thin, Exactly. (laughs) And some of the designs they use are pretty complex because they've got all these manufactured techniques that allow them to manufacture incredibly complex designs fairly easily. Sure. But the durability on some of these designs, because of the number of plates and fins and well joints and such as that, the durability becomes a factor. And what makes it so, so bad is that the amount of labor required to change these things, you know, a heater core probably still is not all that expensive in the total scheme of things. You could buy one from anywhere from $50 to probably $200 for an expensive one. Right. But it's not 
the problem. The problem is that 10 to 12 hours to pull a dash out exactly. to get to it. Getting to it is the cost. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you're having to pay a shop, then that's going to be somewhere between probably 85 and $120 an hour. And if you're doing it yourself, that's going to be probably three weekends of cussing and fussing and getting your knuckle skin up. <laughs> And, and hoping it all goes back together and doesn't rattle when you get done. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, they they sure put all them bolts in there for a reason. That's absolutely right. They didn't leave any of them oh, out. Oh, no, no. And then, of course, your wife's ragging on you for the next two years because you got a rattling dash you can't figure it out, and you just don't want to have to go back into exactly. it. Exactly. So, uh, you know how big a deal it was to go there the first time. That's right. You're either going to turn it over to a shop and hope they can fix it or go sell the car one Exactly. Then it's going to cost you 40 grand to fix this problem. <laughs> that or divorce one or the other. I was going to uh, say. I tell you, women, you're sure hear all them little rattles and squeaks oh yeah they, they hear a lot better knocking i can tell you oh yeah but when you have to start doing those types of repairs it's just just a big 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 thing and the thing is a lot of that is preventable by using the proper coolant and the proper technique for changing the coolant sure and not changing the coolant is very 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 bad because all these additives will get depleted over a period of time the ph on the coolant will drop it'll become corrosive and start eating the system up right but changing it improperly is it's, as bad or worse than not changing it at all. Or if you got a small leak and not addressing a small leak. Well, that's bad you know. because what it's going to do is going to start drawing air into the system. Well, now we've got a corrosive liquid, we've got dissimilar metals, and we've got okay. oxygen. That's it. Which is all we need to just really, really wreak havoc on what we, we got. We've seen a Suburban kept eating radiator cores. Mm-hmm. So we finally got it to stop eating radiator cores up, found out that it had a electricity going on in the, in the cooling system. Mm-hmm. Finally got that straightened out. What had happened is one of the ground straps got left off the engine. Right. We'll call it transient ground. And it was using the, the coolant to bring the ground back to the... Well, yeah. If the engine is sitting on rubber blocks, which it is, it's Correct. not electrically grounded to the chassis of the car, the starter motor is attached to the engine. So we start cranking this car. We're You're pulling, drawing amps. Yeah, pulling 200, 175 to 200 amps. If the ground cable is only capable of transporting, say, 150 amps, 25 more amps have to go somewhere. And it's going, going, it's going to get them. They, it's going to find it. Whether it's, it's going a, to find a path to ground, and in many cases, the coolant will actually transport electricity under sure. certain conditions. What happens, it may draw it through the coolant, which is going to really start causing problems. And this case, some well-meaning amateur went in. He says, well, we got electrolysis. We'll ground the radiator. Well, that's the worst possible thing. Could. And now you just enhance the transfer exactly, path that's by putting a ground strap on the radiator so it start eating them twice as fast. That's it. So, yeah, we had to go in and find the problem, add an additional ground that was not on the radiator, get all the coolant out of there and put the right stuff back in. Right. Just shows you the kind of things you run across. Exactly. <laughs> hey, we got to take one more quick little break. Be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hey, Mike, I'm thinking about boiling some shrimp. You know where I can get a good price? Oh, yeah. I got a shrimp guy, but there's a catch. His name is Remy Labateau, and you have to go down to Lafouche Parish and meet him after midnight. Okay. He'll be behind the dumpster of an abandoned fireworks stand off Louisiana 1, and you have to buy exactly 50.3 pounds. Well, that's oddly specific. It seems everybody's got a guy these days. And if you're looking for an automotive guy, look no further than the team at Agco Automotive. No hassles, just straight up quality maintenance and repairs. And with Agco's general inspection, they can perform an annual checkup to find any problems and schedule maintenance to keep your car running right, saving you money in the long run. So what kind of seasoning do you use? Oh, I got a seasoning guy, too. How do you feel about traveling to Bangkok? Get automotive peace of mind. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. 
Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of AgCo Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. And we're going back to our phone lines with Jimmy. Good morning, Jimmy. Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Doing great, sir. Doing great. Got a question about, uh, maybe simple for y'all, a 94 GMC with got a little 4.3 in it. Okay. About 150,000 miles on it. Never had the spark plugs changed. What's the best way to go about that? Hot, warm engine, cool engine? No, no, definitely cold, Jimmy. You want the engine cold enough to where you can lay your hand on it. Don't ever work on it hot because what happens if you, it's not such a big deal taking them out hot, but when you go to put them back in, if those heads are hot, they're expanded, and that plug is nice and cold. So when you screw it in and you torque it, it's going to be way, way over-torqued. When the plug heats up, next time it comes out, the threads may come out with it. So you always want the engine cold to the touch. I like to let them sit for a couple hours at least where I can lay my hand on the cylinder head. Then I change the spark plugs. And pretty simple on that one. I mean, they're right there in the wide open, not hard to get to at all. I like the AC Delco replacement plug. I don't like any of those aftermarket plugs. They just don't work as well. And with that many miles, I would probably go ahead and replace the plug wires just because they're going to be real tired. And when the time you get them off of there, they're going to be glued to the plugs. You're going to end up tearing them up. Yeah, if it I, don't, I, I change the plug in the cap and roller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just change it all, and you know, well, you'd be done with yeah. it and ready to go. I mean, check the gap on them, but they should be already pre-gapped when you get them. And I'd check the gap on them anyway, yeah. even though they're supposed to be gapped to the right Every once in a while, you'll find some that the box got dropped. Right. And, and it, it landed on the electrode ends and they're all smashed. Or, platinum plug, you can regap it. If right. It's a, if it's an iridium plug, you need to return it to the store and get one that's gapped properly because you're not supposed to change the gap on them. They can actually end up fracturing and it break off inside your motor. So that, that would, engine actually yeah, calls, for, nice. yeah, it calls for a platinum plug, so it shouldn't be a problem. But like your V8s call for an iridium plug. And okay. you're not, you should never regap an iridium plug. And just torque them down and you'll be good to go. All right, thank you very much. All right, Jimmy, thanks, man. All right. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 may not be working. I noticed yeah. you're having some trouble with that line, but and we'll try to help you out. That's Still it. Still got a few more minutes. Yeah, I had a guy called during the break. He says, man, I can't get through. I, don't know. <laughs> I said, well, that's because. <laughs> yeah, we're having a little phone trouble. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. I thought it was a reason we didn't get any more calls. Now, so, man, we usually get 10 or 15 calls almost every week. All of a right. sudden, we didn't get but a couple this week. So if you just got to get through here before we go out of time, we still got a few more minutes. And That's right. And should you happen not to make it or, like I said before, think of something after we go off the air or maybe even next week, you can get your questions answered through our email. That's right. Through our website. The address is agcoauto.com. It's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just fill out the little form and send it on in. That's right. That'll get the answer back to you. While you're on there, go ahead and peruse around that site. I think you'll find a whole lot of information, probably things that you never, maybe never thought of, maybe never occurred to you. Right. And I'm sure you'll probably get tired of reading before well, you run out of information. Well, you run out of stuff to look at. I can tell you that. <laughs> there's about over a million words of text on that site. So It's a, it's a great technical site for the average person to understand well that's right i always try to write to a level where a person without a huge amount of technical expertise can still understand it and i've got people who go behind me and kind of proofread and make sure they understand it and if it doesn't i try to make changes so uh-huh. i see all our lines lit up now there we go how many of them we can catch we got mike online good morning mike hey Liz. how you doing today doing great sir Good, good. I have uh, two questions for you. I've got a 2000 Yukon XL, mm-hmm. and it's leaking oil, and I already changed the pan, the oil pan, but yes, it looks sir. like it's leaking up underneath the bell housing. Like yes, the, sir. Uh, yes, sir. The rear main seal cover is where they leak. It cover that goes around the rear main seal. In fact, I've got an article on my website shows pictures and everything. A okay. lot of those actually had porosity in them when they cast them from Chevrolet. 
and they leak because of that, and there's some fixes for those sorts of things. Okay. Transmission has to come out, but it's not a super big deal. I mean, probably four and a half hours pull of transmission, another half hour change of rear main seal. Okay. All right, that sounds good. Uh-huh. And then the other question I have, I've got a 2002. It's a Jaguar uh, Band Plus, mm-hmm. and it makes a kind of a something noise in the back rear, and it looks like it's that bushing on the shock of Yeah, the that's, that's right. pretty common on those cars. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you have to end up pulling tank to get to that thing? I don't, or? I don't think I don't, so. We've changed. We don't work on European cars any longer, but back when we did, we used to do a lot of those, and I believe that strutting, it's a, it's a call over shock. I think it just comes out. I don't think you have to take the uh, gas tank out. I don't recall oh, okay. ever doing it, put it that way. Okay, and, but you don't work on those? I don't no, work on so. European cars at all. We just don't have the tooling and electronics and all to communicate with them any longer, so you know, we get in there and get into a problem. There's nothing we can do, so... It's one of those deals nowadays, every car you're going to work on, you have $100,000 worth of equipment, and there's just not enough of those around for me to justify buying it all. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Okay, great. Thank right. well. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I ain't going to give that number out again. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody from Cox Phones is listening, yeah. just let them know I'm real aggravated with them right now. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but then again, that's only one of the things I'm aggravated with about. So. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about like European cars, and I got a lot of folks who ask me, well, why don't you do this or that or the others? Because all of the communications now on the European cars is totally different from Japanese and domestic. Sure. And it's just sort of a feel all its own now. You got it is. Set up and prepared to do just that. You those. got people who specialize in That's just right. those types of vehicles. That's right. Hey, I want to tell everybody how much I appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. And tell your friends and get us some more listeners on there. Go That's to right. iTunes and Stitcher and all those great rebroadcast That's right. Sites. Give, give us a root and rating. We really appreciate that, and it kind of moves us up, and that way more folks can get to hear us. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.